Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer. Some people don't like the term, but I think, like many other words, it's all in how you say it. My umbrella business is Boom with a Bang, and I think we should keep that in mind as much as possible. We Boomer women don't have a lot of role models as we traverse this chapter. So the goal of this podcast is to introduce you to guests who might incentivize, encourage, teach you to embrace your wisdom, our wisdom. With this incarnation of the Boomer Woman's Podcast, I'm interviewing people who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at boomwithabang.com. If you want to be a guest on podcast or know someone who would be a great guest, message me. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. So let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. My guest today is a feminine longevity expert. In addition to being a board-certified nurse midwife, a breast health expert, and a published author, her credentials are long and very impressive. On a more personal level, she and I have quite a bit in common. She enjoys chocolate over vanilla, coffee over tea, dogs over cats, we've just been listening to my dog bark, and spicy over mild. It's not often I see those tidbits in a bio. Kristen Mallon, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Kristen, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, In 2022, you and a colleague started a company called Femgevity. What deficits did you see in women's healthcare, particularly women in mid-age, that prompted you to start Femgevity? So it was really like a combination of three different things. So the first is like just how we generally look at healthcare. We look at people, are you sick? Yes or no. If you're sick, great, come into our system. If you're not, come back when you're sick. And we call this sick care. And I just, and a lot of the allied health professions have kind of picked up the pieces that medicine has kind of dropped in acupuncture and nutrition and exercise experts. But I would love to see medical practitioners actually practicing longevity medicine and well care in addition to our allied health colleagues. So that was really one. The second one is there just was this significant gap for women in their midlife. So 40 to 60, I saw this with my own clients. So I was a certified nurse midwife. I started my practice, private practice in 2006. And so, you know, I delivered a lot of women, they were in their thirties, they were in their forties. And then since 2006, now they've moved into their forties and fifties and sixties. And they're asking me, what do I do? Where do I go? They're lost. They don't know if they should go to me. They should go to their internist. If they should go to an endocrinologist, they're, they're basically kind of confused. And I felt like the access wasn't there. And then, you know, women's health in general, I think is starting to gain momentum. We're starting to see different things happen. Um, But a lot of it is really focused around pregnancy and reproduction and birth control and menstrual cycle. And so I really just wanted there to be a place for women 45 plus to kind of go, because I think sometimes we're lost. We're not sick enough to need sick 
care, but we're not, we're not in the reproductive time anymore. Our reproductive longevity is kind of coming to the end of its time. And then we're, we're kind of lost in, in the in-between and there's so much to do. There's so much that can really be done. I always call it like banking your time, like banking your health time that you're then going to withdraw in the last decade of your life because we focus so much in healthcare on what age did they die? Well, how old were they when they died? But what about the last decade or it's called the marginal decade now in longevity medicine? What about the last decade of a, of a woman's life? What's her mobility like? What's her sex life like? What's her strength and flexibility like? What is her activity level? Like, can she lift groceries? Can she do these activities of daily living that are things a lot of times we don't think about when it comes to healthcare? We just think about like, well, my mom died at 90, so I'm going to be okay. But what was your mother's life like for the last 10 or 15 years before she died? Okay, first of all, I got to say that I'm really glad you're the guest because I'll let you do the talking because <laughs> I'm in Canada and with socialized healthcare and how doctors are paid, I have a really serious soapbox that I like to get on that would really promote health care. So not sick care, but health care. Yes. But we won't go there today. <laughs> and yeah, this whole thing about as we get older and everybody knows I come with notes. So I'm really glad or really pleased with what you just said, because I think my notes are going to be fairly spot on. So that's good. Awesome. Um, now, I've had several guests on to talk about menopause and hormones over the last couple mm -hmm. of years. I was really interested in your other specialty, breast health. Mm -hmm. We hear and read a lot about breast issues, disease, cancer. I have some questions, but can you address breast health in general, please? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is about awareness around breast health and just knowing that we still are recommending women do monthly breast self-checks. And a lot of times women are, are nervous or scared because they're afraid they're going to find something, but that's really exactly what we want them to do. We want them to be able to identify what's going on in their breast tissue because very often women who self-diagnose themselves as having some sort of abnormality in the breast, the prognosis is amazing. It's excellent. And they end up doing very, very well in the long run. Um, and I think one of the big things that I like to promote, because I think we do know about breast cancer awareness, but there's a couple things I like to promote about breast health in general. One being the self breast checks that I mentioned, monthly self breast checks. So I always say, when's your birthday? My birthday is on the 15th of the month. So every 15th of the month, same day as tax day here in America, um, I'll do a breast, I'll do a self breast exam. And the second is, is that even if you've been checked for a genetic cancer screen, like BRCA1 or BRCA2, there are about seven additional genes now that are associated with breast cancer. Um, and so I always, you know, I tell women to always just check in regularly. If you do have a family history of breast cancer with your um, primary care doctor, or, you know, maybe a specialty doctor, or maybe your um, breast health doctor um, in America, we do have um, breast specialists to see if there's been any updates to any genetic testing that you've had. So sometimes women will tell me like, oh, well, my mom had BRCA testing and she's negative. And I'm like, well, you still could have a, a gene like ATM. You could have the ATM gene, which is also linked to breast and ovarian cancer. So that's number two. And then I think the third thing is, is really that, um, the earlier breast cancer is detected, the less the treatment needs to be. And so I really always encourage women not to be fearful of breast checks, not to be fearful of going to their practitioner regularly and getting a breast exam because 
the earlier something's detective, the less chance there is for um, radical surgery or even chemotherapy. And the prognosis is really, really high. In general, the, the prognosis for breast cancer is very high, you know, much higher than it is for something like cardiovascular disease. But, um, you know, I, I really want to encourage women to get that checked early. I, I, I have this line I use that um, after having three children, I went from a 36 B to a 38 long. Can you talk? <laughs> Sorry. It's the only time I saw my mother snort ice cream down her nose. <laughs> Can you talk about breast density and self checks and things like that? Please. Yeah. So one of the great things about doing a breast check every month, starting early, hopefully, is that you get to know your own breast tissue and breast tissue is lumpy and bumpy. It's very heterogeneous. It's not smooth. And so you can start to know like, okay, well, it's a little bit thicker up here and a little bit thinner down here and it's not the same. And that's exactly the point of doing a, a self breast check. Dense breasts don't necessarily mean you have a higher chance of breast cancer. Cystic breasts can. And, and I want to say that with like a little bit of a caveat because, you know, not everything is a causation. Sometimes things are just correlated. And so just because you've been diagnosed as having dense breast tissue isn't like, okay, well, you can't do your own self-breast exams. It's too difficult for you, or you should be on the lookout because you're definitely going to get, get breast cancer. And, and that's not how it is. A lot of times things like breast pain or cystic breast can actually be related to hormonal changes like high estrogen levels or hyperestrogen. And another thing that I think is really interesting about breast health in general is that the first time we get pregnant, our breast development actually changes and stops. So, so the certain parts of our breast development stop. So that's why actually, if you have a pregnancy before the age of 20, your chance of any breast disease, any type of breast changes is actually seven times lower than the average woman. So sometimes that's an interesting thing that women can know about. Like, even if you have a really significant family history of dense breasts or cystic breasts or breast pain or breast cancer, that if you had a pregnancy early, in life, you know, even early twenties, that your chance of breast cancer is actually lower, just like if you breastfeed. So if you breastfed, your chance of breast cancer is actually lower. So that's a really positive thing I like to kind of share about breast health in general. Right. Do you find that a lot of women, um, especially with denser breasts, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they're sort of reluctant to do the self-test, but they hate like the very old devil going in and getting the pancake treatment. Yes, definitely. So I, you know, just because your breast tissue is dense, I understand the reluctance to do the breast exams. Like, well, what am I going to feel anyway? But still, it's so important. We still are having women that are identifying abnormalities and changes like in a pre pre cancer way and, and needing very minimal treatment. So I really encourage women, even with dense breasts, a tongue twister today yeah, to, um, to definitely do the breast exams. And yes, the pancake treatment for dense breasts is generally more painful. Sometimes women will use other imaging technology. So MRI may be an option. Ultrasound might be an option. And then there also is thermo imaging. So we don't recommend that in lieu of a regular mammogram, regular, regular yearly mammogram, but sometimes it can be used and in, as an adjunct in some ways. Okay. There, there has been controversy, for lack of a better term, over mammograms, but it sounds like you still feel that they're one of the better tools. 
Yeah. So MRI is really the gold standard, but it's, you know, a much more time intensive test and much more expensive test. So it's not always covered and not always available. And women don't always have access to that type of technology. There's no pain involved. I mean, if you have claustrophobia, then there would be that, that part of it. But, um, I do still encourage women to go for mammograms because that's what the American Cancer Society recommends. That's really like our standard baseline treatment. But I do encourage any woman who has a history of breast cancer in her family, especially premenopausal breast cancer. So a breast cancer that occurred in a first degree relative before the age of menopause. So that's usually 51. So sometimes women will be like, well, I don't know what, when my mother went through menopause, but her breast cancer was around 52. So I would still consider that to be potentially premenopausal breast cancer, that they really get under the care of a breast specialist and they do consider genetic cancer screening for breast cancer. Now, I'm old enough to remember all sorts of stories about bras that constrict, whether it's the, mm-hmm. the chest or the or the breast. Yes. Or taking an impact to the breast, you know, whether it's a fall against something or whatever, and those causing problems to the breast. Is that just talk or is there anything to those sort of stories? So yes and no. I mean, so the breast tissue is just like any other tissue in the body. So when you have an injury or a contusion or any type of damage to the surrounding tissue, it can scar. And some women are better scar healers than others. So most women know like what type of scarring they have, like the the keloid scars are scars that are pretty large. And they they usually, the abnormality around the um, injury is pretty big. And then some women will have, very minimal scarring, even on large injuries, even if they've had surgery and they've had like, you know, a 10 centimeter cut or something like that. And so if you do tend to be someone who scars easily, that scarring can, can happen in the breast tissue. And then, and we do see that from time to time that can come up on imaging. So it can come up on mammogram, you know, as seen as like a white calcification. And sometimes they'll ask you if you've had a biopsy or any other type of injury like that, okay, where were those points whenever you get imaging done? So they're like, okay, well, I'll know that when that comes up on imaging, that that's not a suspicious, that's not a suspicious finding. So yeah, th- there can be some truth to that, but not for all women and and not just for women with dense breasts. So density doesn't necessarily correlate with scarring. Mm. Are there any other scare stories? I mean, I, I thought of those two instantly as I was writing my notes. Are there any other stories out there that uh, have perpetuated over? The yeah, years? I think I think a lot of it, like I mentioned it before too, like about how women are. They've heard that dense breast means breast cancer, and they've heard that cystic breast means breast cancer. And then I think the other thing that I really feel very passionate about, because, you know, at Femgevity, we do longevity, but we also do a lot of hormonal and menopausal treatments because how a woman goes through menopause affects longevity so significantly. A lot of the scare about estrogen and estrogen and breast cancer. And this is, I think, unfortunately, one of the biggest kind of disservices that the Women's Health Initiative did in 2002 is it made women really confused and it yo-yoed them about like, what is estrogen? What does that mean? What does estrogen mean for me? And um, it's been disproven time and time and time again about estrogen and breast cancer and that the the it's not statistically significant, the increase. And, and actually we used to use estrogen to treat breast cancer. And for some breast cancers, estrogen can be 
very effective. So I think there's that too, that sometimes women are afraid, you know, it's a little bit of a, like kind of a, a jump, um, but women are afraid to use things like estrogen and progesterone treatments when they're going through menopause. And those treatments can actually have really, really profound effects on cardiovascular health, Alzheimer's and dementia. So neurodegenerative disease prevention, and then also bone loss prevention. So women are missing out on this really kind of great treatment because they're afraid of the breast cancer risk when it probably doesn't apply to them. I want to go two places here. (laughs) I'll start with something you said earlier. I was going to ask, and before we started recording, I warned you, I had a couple of questions out of, out of left field, Yeah, but it sounds like you're going to ace this one. <laughs> now, the, the BRCA gene is, if a woman tests positive and chooses to, as, at a younger age, have, uh, whether it's a single mastectomy or a double mastectomy, just to be safe, and mm-hmm. I, I realize the decisions are all across the map. Mm-hmm. How does that affect breast health on a go-forward basis, given the fact that the the actual physical thing isn't there anymore? Yeah. So women that have had mastectomy, we still do encourage them to do breast exams just in the surrounding tissue, because most of the time, even in mastectomy, all of like a hundred percent of the tissue isn't removed. You know, there, and I'm not a breast surgeon, so I wouldn't be like the, the, expert on exactly how these technologies are advancing, because I do believe that there's a possibility that with robotics and with, you know, what's kind of coming up in the field of breast surgery, that they might be getting closer to that. But we still do recommend for now to do uh, breast exams of the surrounding tissue, not so much imaging anymore. You know, it's usually not necessary to do any imaging because no cancer is really going to grow big enough in such a minimal amount of tissue that won't be noticed. And then, you know, wouldn't be very obvious to the patient themselves to kind of figure out, okay, this, this isn't normal. I should get this checked out. And a lot of times if, if a woman is BRCA positive, BRCA1, BRCA2 positive, and they do undergo um, double mastectomy, that means that they are under the care of either an oncologist or a breast specialist who's checking in with them regularly too. You touched on it briefly earlier, but at what point there are, what is the scope of, for lack of a better term, genetic inevitability? Like, I mean, obviously there is no complete inevitability. There's no guarantees that your mother had breast cancer. You're going to get breast cancer. I don't think. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of thought too, that there's, different things from the longevity medicines, medicine side to help prevent cancer. So certain cancers like glucose um, metabolism. So making sure that your insulin levels are lower on the lower side, fasting insulin levels are on the lower side, hemoglobin A1C levels are lower on, you know, on the lower side, normal is generally considered 5.6 on a hemoglobin A1C. So keeping your hemoglobin A1C below 5.3 sometimes can be helpful in women that have a genetic history of, or a genetic predisposition to cancer. So there's, there are certain things that can be done, not just, you know, not just radical surgeries or not just like more having screening done more often. The risk kind of varies depending on the the variants that each woman has within the gene. And that's something probably a, a genetic counselor would be able to answer better than, than myself. But there it's, it's very high. Like it's in the upwards of like 80 or 90% of a lifetime risk of developing cancer for certain variants in BRCA1 and 2. 
Okay, just going back to the mastectomy piece of that. D does a mastectomy or a double mastectomy change horm or affect hormone levels? So not really. The biggest change in hormone levels would certainly be having the ovaries removed. And so sometimes this is something that women who are BRCA1 or BRCA2 positive have undergone. And so that actually would put a woman into surgical menopause um, and depending on the age. So I know there are different recommendations for different breast surgeons and different um, genetic oncologists that recommend if a woman is considering having her ovaries removed, doing it at different ages of life, you know, some in the late 30s, some in the 40s. And so the earlier a woman removes her her ovaries specifically, that's going to have a profound impact on her hormonal levels, put her into menopause early. And then if her ovaries are removed before the age of 40, then she really needs to consider what her strategy is going to be for bone loss and also for cardiovascular protection going forward. Okay. I have my notes and I mean, yeah, ask you, me anything. Yeah, no, no, it's just but so from a, But from a breast perspective, you know, there are some receptors in the breast, but generally there isn't a significant amount of change for most women hormonally, but some women do experience kind of that phantom limb, that kind of phantom limb kind of tingling pain sensation because, you know, the breasts aren't a limb per se, but they are kind of an appendage, so to speak, on the body. So that is kind of something more than, than a hormonal perspective. Certainly the, you know, it's similar to kind of when the uterus is, is removed, there are some very slight and mild changes that women experience and, and much more subtle symptoms that go on that we usually do kind of manage hormonally when someone's had a hysterectomy or a removal of, of the uterus. So the breast removal is similar when it comes to, but when it comes to ovaries, that's a significant that's a significant hormonal shift. Right. So I'm, I, and I'm going to shift now into the longevity piece. Yeah. By the time your and my conversation here today goes live on the podcast, what will also have gone live is a hormone and um, menopause specialist that I've interviewed. Now, he mentioned that so often when we talk about hormones, People think sex drive, reproduction, but, and you've also, I, the parallels here, it was like you went to his school or something, but you talk about the fact that our muscles, our bone density, even our cardiovascular is also affected by our hormone levels. It sounds like hormone therapy is an important part of a whole big equation. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So hormone therapy isn't isn't for everyone. And estrogen certainly isn't a one size fits all. There are a multitude of hormones that go into making us up. Cholesterol plays a role in hormone production because cholesterol is really the antecedent to all of our sex steroid hormones. Progesterone is incredibly imp important. There's a hormone called pregnolone. Of course, thyroid is very important. Cortisol and stress play a really significant role in addition to estrogen, testosterone, DHEA. So you really do need a menopause specialist when, when trying to navigate this. And it's not that if you didn't, you know, if you're in your sixties or seventies and you didn't take HRT, like, okay, well that's, then you missed out. But, but it, for some women, it is incredibly helpful. And, and I really like to push to, any woman with heart disease in her family that she really seriously consider 
hormone replacement therapy because the cardio protection and, and Alzheimer's protection too, and bone protection as well, but the cardio protection is just really profound. So, you know, one in 38 women are going to die of breast cancer and one in four women are going to die of heart disease. So it's this very significant risk that I think a lot of times we, we don't think about because breast cancer is a young woman's disease and cardiovascular disease is more of an older woman's disease. And so I just, I like to kind of put that out there that like, it's so important to seek a menopause specialist as soon as, you know, even before symptoms start sometimes to get baseline labs done or to get a baseline check-in done. But as soon as symptoms starts, that's really a woman's opportunity to kind of like, okay, let me think about my longevity planning. Like what are my risk factors from a family history perspective? And then how am I going to navigate that and manage them going forward? Okay, one of the other lines I use regularly is I'm going to live forever and so far so good. <laughs> <laughs> I love this podcast because the more professionals I interview, the more I realize that I don't know, but how much I'm learning. So that's great. What other parts of the longevity equation or shall I say, healthy longevity equation is there? Yeah. So there's really, I call it, um, and this is something that is, I think, common in longevity medicine is we call it the four horsemen of disease. So you have cardiovascular disease, cancer disease, metabolic disease, which primarily comes from diabetes. Diabetes leads to liver disease, kidney disease generally. And then we have the neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, cognitive impairment, Parkinson's disease. So those are the four horsemen of disease. When we look at a woman's risk factors, and sometimes we do have access to specialty medicine or precision medicine testing um, that will tell us about genetic risk factors. We usually identify two of the four that a woman will kind of come into as those are really her biggest risks. She knows, okay, I have this history of cancer in my family, or I have a history of heart attacks in my family, or I have a history of diabetes in my family. So then once we kind of narrow it down between which two we want to focus on, I mean, ideally we want to focus on all four, but sometimes it's easier to just parse it out and focus on two. And then we kind of figure out like, okay, what are we going to, how are we going to mitigate these risks? And to be honest, the number one way to usually reduce risk across all four systems or all, across all four horsemen is through exercise. So exercise is about five times more effective than the next pill. And it's not always the exercise that you're thinking of, okay, go out for a run or go for a hike or do yoga or Pilates. There's very specific exercises that are geared towards each of the four horsemen. So if you're trying to control for diabetes, it's different than if you're trying to control for cardiovascular disease. Hey, it's like you have my notes in front of you. This is great. <laughs> Hormones and brain health, AKA dementia. Mm -hmm. Any, what's the correlation there? Yeah. So this really comes down to sleep. So it's not so much about I'm sorry, hormones. my next question was about, sleep. about sleep. <laughs> so it's not so much about hormones. It's really about sleep. And this is why I say some women don't need 
hormone replacement therapy they, or they don't need hormones. They, they go through menopause. They don't miss a beat. Hormonally, it doesn't affect them that much. They're still sleeping the same. They don't experience the brain fog. They don't go into the, the severe fatigue. I mean, some patients tell me they're like, I feel like I have leukemia. They're like, I don't know what leukemia is, but I, I feel so tired and like soul crushing fatigue that I can't function. Like I have to take naps. And that is usually an indication that something's going on with sleep. So deep sleep specifically is incredibly important for cognitive protection. And that starts to go down as our hormones go down, not for everybody. And then the manifestations of that come out in the forgetfulness, the brain fog. So I usually recommend getting a sleep tracker. So for any of our longevity patients, I'm, I really do push sleep trackers. I actually I'm not paid by them, but I do have an aura ring myself. And um, there are a lot of really good apps on um, Garmin and Apple Health and Fitbit that track sleep with heart rate variability, and they're pretty accurate. So once we kind of start to collect data on what's going on with sleep, that helps us to put a plan forward for cardio or for neuro protection going forward. Now, when people talk about sleep issues, they often talk about lack of sleep issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is also such a thing I understand as too much sleep. So yes and no. So there isn't too much REM. You can't have too much REM sleep and you can't have too much deep sleep. So that that's not really a thing. You can have too much time in bed. So that's why kind of using some sort of wearable or some sort of tracker that's going to help you monitor what and you know, through heart rate variability typically and respiration rates is how they kind of get this data, what type of sleep you're getting and then what the issues are surrounding sleep. A lot of times too, sleep apnea plays a big role in this and a, and a big part in loss of sleep and why sleep isn't happening in addition to hormones, hormones too. So definitely hormones being unbalanced for some women are gonna cause sleep uh, abnormations and and also more specifically lack of deep sleep because when you, when women get deep sleep or anybody when anybody gets deep sleep that's when our brain is able to kind of like clear out and flush out all the trash that kind of comes to our brain throughout the day and we're able to kind of not have those um those bits of plaque kind of deposit within the um the the neural system now you talk about flushing out Mm -hmm. I'm tying all these things together in my mind, and I don't know if I'm I'm on the money or not. Is that where cardiovascular health also helps that process, or is it a different type of process? That's a different type of process. So cardiovascular health is really about pushing our VO2 max. So like how much oxygen are we, how much are we able to kind of use our cardiopulmonary system when we're working out? And so that the more we can kind of push our stamina and push um, how hard we can push ourselves or the high intensity interval training, that type of exercise is really what's going to give us the best cardio protection. Okay. Note to self, phone my friend and tell him not to listen to this episode. <laughs> I have a mountain that four of us climb every Saturday morning. And because of my driveway, which is super steep, um, I've been doing really, really well, but I, but I hate it. And then last week I had somebody join us who was slower. So I walked with them and we talked and we talked and it was great. And it was really interesting. And suddenly we're at the top of the mountain and I went like, that was easy. And it was so fast. So we weren't that far behind 
people who mm-hmm. are fast. And so I just yesterday I had the discussion with the friend who is always fast and really pushes himself. And he says, I really feel better about it when I get to the top and I'm totally wasted, but I've done it. And I'm going, yeah, but I really enjoyed enjoying the, the hike up the mountain. Enjoying the journey. Yeah. 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 But, uh, and it just seemed to go faster than when I was plowing through because <laughs> we pushed just hard enough that we can't talk for the last half. Right. So, Okay, yeah. Pri- so you're probably story. you're probably doing you're probably doing it already. You're getting the best of both worlds. You're enjoying yourself and with your friend, and then also pushing yourself as hard as you can. Well, not quite quite as hard as I can, but that's okay. That's a whole other story. One of the reasons I went down the sleep path was I know a person who is closer to ninety in the last couple of years has been increasing to approximately. 12 hours of sleep from to say midnight to 12 noon and her memory loss is accelerating and Mm -hmm. I had understood there was a correlation but you're saying that it's the type of sleep not the length of sleep yeah so most likely what that is you know and I have no idea because everybody is definitely different but generally it's really about types of sleep so for example and I don't know if she's her BMI is on the heavier side, but if she's heavier, then that could potentially lead her to have more sleep apnea. Or even if she's not, sometimes sleep apnea will develop with age just because of how um, the spine changes and different um, you know anatomical malformations come up just from life and, and living. And so that could be what's causing this person to not ever get into deep sleep. And then that's, so then it doesn't matter if you sleep for 24 hours, if you're not experiencing any deep sleep, that's when the cognition is really going to start to go. Yeah. She's actually up not long enough to have three meals a day. So she's losing weight. She's quite tiny. Yeah. Okay. We've covered different areas of longevity. Is there an area that we haven't covered? Is there something or more proactive things we could be doing? You've talked about exercise. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, there's, there's so many things that can be done to kind of help with longevity, but exercise is certainly one of them, the right type of exercise for the right risk factors that you have really bone loss and bone health is so important for everyone. And that still kind of relates to exercise, but it really relates to more muscle building. So there is a correlation between how much muscle you have and how long you live. So there is that. And then of course, diet plays a big role too, because depending on if, especially if you fall into the metabolic disease category. So, you know, that usually is a person who has more insulin resistance. So meaning that they can't usually eat as many carbohydrates, they have to do a different type of exercise for them, which is more a aerobic exercise, not building up lactic acid when they exercise so that they kind of stay in a fat burning zone, burning glucose as they work out. And, and then there's, there's lots of different types of kind of, I think, important factors. We mentioned the sleep, mentioned the diet, mentioned the exercise, but also about mental health too. So not to let that go when it comes to understanding longevity, because it, who wants to live a long time if you're depressed or you're anxious or you're miserable or you're lonely. So I think that that's kind of a really important factor when it comes to longevity is, is mental health. So now we've talked about, 
as you talk, I'm picturing in my mind, we've all seen those pictures of the mind maps where, you know, this is related to that, which is related to that, but then this over here is also related. And it seems that like our health is so much like that, especially as we get older. I, where I was going with that is just with non-lifestyle stuff. It sounds like in order to keep the whole system moving, something like hormone therapy is definitely a big player. Yeah. So hormone therapy can certainly help a lot. And, and I think that one of the things that I really like to kind of emphasize or encourage is that there's certain things that we've come to accept as a society that just go along with aging, like more immobility or more forgetfulness. And, and, you know, a lot of times we, we work that into like our common language, like, oh, I'm getting older. So that's why I feel that way, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so I think like just even the mindset shift of, I can still have a libido. I can still have a great sex life. I can still play tennis at 95 and people being like, whoa, 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 that, you know, and that maybe eventually will just become the norm. Like, yeah, of course we can hike and play tennis and run and do all of these things that we did in our youth because we made the deposits in the health bank when we were in our 60s and 50s that we're now withdrawing when we get into our 80s. I think one of the things that I think I've noticed kind of shocks people too is that, you know, how if you don't protect yourself from fragility, how fast you can get fragile. And, and when I say protect yourself from fragility, I really mean like not losing muscle mass. Like I always tell women like, well, every decade you actually need to be lifting heavier weights. You need to be doing more weights. So I think like just kind of shifting our mindset about like, well, I'm getting older. So that's why that is no, no, no. It doesn't have to be that way. Like there is a solution, like even just having like the, the mindset of like, I'm going to find a solution sometimes leads you to the solution. So what you're telling me is that third line that I use, which is I'm getting too old for my life <laughs> because, uh, you know, I stay busy and I play with the grandchildren. I do this. I climb the mountain and then I'm just like, oh, I'm done. Um, but it's, you're saying suck it up, princess, go lift weights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think more that like just like even asking yourself the question, like, is this a way I could get make this better or is my health optimal? Because uh, remember like in medicine, we're asking ourselves, are you sick? But let's start asking ourselves, is my health optimal? And I think just asking yourself that questions, like, you know, that self-help guru, Tony Robbins, he always says like, just start asking yourself better questions and you're going to get better answers. And so, you know, maybe like, not like, oh, suck it up buttercup, but like, how could I get more energy or how could I get more, like more muscle mass or how could I have X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, rather than like, Oh, just throwing the towel in and being like, yeah, that that's just the way that it is because the mind will accept whatever we tell the mind to accept. So if we tell the mind, there's a way, there's a way to live to 120 and still feel fantastic. Then, you know, and there's people that have done it before. There's been plenty of centenarians and people that live well into their 110 years. And, um, I, I just saw a, uh, somebody posted on Facebook that there was a woman 98 ran a marathon. So I, I think that like when we start asking ourselves, like, hmm, do I want to run a marathon at 98? Like we'll get better answers. Maybe the answer will be no, but maybe it'll be like, do I want to run a 5k when I'm 98? And and then that will lead us down the path of like, of getting those answers. Cause we're asking better questions. Right. Right. I mentioned with the dog and all that, my brother's visiting and I just finished asking him about uh, a friend of his 
who is, I believe, in her late 70s now. And her and her husband both crashed their bicycles into a deer um, a, mm. less than a year ago, well, so last summer. And so I said, how are they doing? Oh, yeah, just fine. Oh, yeah. And she's back doing her marathons. She's still coming first in her age group. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man. Um, so what I'm hearing, though, is, is we don't ask ourselves the easy questions like, do I have high cholesterol? Oh, no, I'm okay. Uh, you know, is my heart rate okay? Oh, yeah, it's great. It's like, is my health optimal? Exactly. Yeah. That's my favorite question to ask all, all of, all of the patients that I work with is I'm always asking them, like, what are your health goals? What are your like crazy, like if you could have a million dollars health goals, you know, the equivalent in health, health goals. And then, you know, I think once they kind of start to think like, oh, well, maybe that could be me, then it's kind of fun to like, to kind of put the pieces together and work towards, towards those goals. And, and just that feeling of accomplishment's got to be good for your yeah. health too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And mental health for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, there's so many stories out there. Like I, I saw another story about a woman, 88, she set the Guinness book of world records for surfing and I'm a big surfer. So I, I oh. love, I loved that story. And, you know, women who pick up things at 80 and they, they become avid painters or a woman who wrote a book in her eighties and like never was a writer before in her life. So I really think that we shouldn't just be thinking of like the eighties, the nineties as these decades where like, I hope to get there. Well, let's get there. And also like, let's, we can reinvent ourselves and we can do something totally different. And like, then that's kind of more exciting. Like, oh, well, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to have these different experiences. I'm going to have these different group of friends. I'm going to have all this different perspective. And like, what is, how am I going to feel then and like what could I contribute to the world then it could be to- something totally different than what I'm doing now like I I love um glass blowing so I've always talked in the back of my head I'm like when I'm 80 I'm gonna become a I'm gonna have a glass blowing shop and I'm gonna have all this glass everywhere and I'm gonna become an artist that that makes like glass things so and why not yeah yeah it, it, listening to you say that I a couple of years ago I I wrote a blog post about you know, like we feel so bad when we see the the 90 year old, you know, doing dancing salsa and flipping around with her grandson and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the woman who, you know, the surfer at 88 or whatever at all. And I said, you know, they're, they're the outliers. And, you know, so, you know, we don't need those big goals, but maybe we do need those big goals so that the outliers become the stories of, oh, did you hear that poor woman at 85 who broke her hip? Yes. And, and that's the outlier. Yes, yes, yes. And and I do think that that's totally possible in health. I think that so many things are accelerating so fast. Like we, we see what's happened with our technology and with AI. And I don't think there's any reason why healthcare can't have a similar trajectory. We're, we're late to the game. You know, we're still faxing and, and using really old technology from the 80s. But there's no reason why we can't catch up. And and I do think that longevity medicine is going to have that like exponential shift and we're going to make really big strides in the next five to 10 years. And so a hundred percent, I'm so with you on that. I love that, that, yeah, we're going to be like, oh, she, um, you know, she, she had a, a lumbar fracture, like, oh, that, that's, you know, headline news. Yeah, right. Yeah. So. <laughs> Poor woman, she was only 90. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> what happened? Okay, we're talking breast health, uh, longevity. Uh, our listeners are mid-age women. Is there anything we haven't talked about? Or is there anything that you want to say to them that they should know or think about? As Yeah, so one of my 
like the biggest things I can say for middle-aged women. So, and to me, I really feel like that encompasses kind of a, a, a broad, a broad range, like 40, 40s, 50s and, and early 60s. There's, it doesn't have to be the way that it is. So I think that sometimes women come, come up, like they come up to something and, you know, like, you know, speaking sex-wise, like a, like a dry vagina or new onset, onset of headaches or, hair thinning or anything it is that they're experiencing, like just shift your thinking to being like, well, that's aging. And like, that's just how it is now. And I just have to deal with it. And and aging is, you know, aging blows, but maybe if we just shift to, I think there can be something that I could do about it. And there usually is. And so I just want to encourage any woman out there to really just seek out the right person who can help them solve the challenge that they're facing in their life. And another thing too, is that like, sometimes things will come up for women, especially in their late forties and fifties. So like really in that middle part of this age range we're talking about that can be related to hormone changes and menopause. So I see this a lot and, and my part, my business partner and I, we joke, we're going to put divorce lawyers out of business because a lot of times women will have irritability or rage or anger or depression or anxiety or loss of libido. And they think it has to do with their environment when it might actually have something to do with the internal hormonal shifts. And so I just always want to put that in a woman's mind, like, okay, just think to yourself, like, could this be hormonally? Should you get that checked before you chalk it up to your environment, your partner, your living situation, your job, your boss, your friends? So I just always, I always love to just put that little caveat there. That's good. Okay. Uh, now, speaking of finding the right person, tell us about Femgevity, please. Yeah. So Femgevity is a telemedicine concierge practice for feminine longevity and menopause specialty. So we do have a menopause subspecialty because so much of longevity can really be amplified in the 40 to 60 timeframe. Um, we are in three States right now in the U S we're definitely going to come to Canada soon, but okay. um, we're in New York, New Jersey, and Florida, and we're expanding to Connecticut and Texas soon. And we're more than happy though, if anybody that's not in a state that we serve that wants to ask us questions or wants some help understanding what's going on with them, we love helping women. I, I love it because it's one of the things where there's so much that can be done. There's such a big room for improvement that it's really fun to see women get better. So we're really very excited to help anyone, even if they're not in a state that we we serve. And our website is... Um, www.femgevityhealth.com. Okay, I, that, that was going to be two questions down. You're a published author. Yes. Is it related? Yeah, so I did put out a breast a breast resource guide a, a, a bit ago, a couple years ago. I did work for the American Cancer Society and I was a certified breast health speaker. I felt very passionate. I still feel very passionate about breast health and, and anything women's health in general. So breast health is definitely a part of that. And then I know it's going to sound odd, but I did, I was the editor for the Journal of Elder Abuse and Neglect. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is very very dear to my heart, especially the type of abuse neglect. So I really got heavily involved in elder neglect. And I just felt that this was a very overlooked type of abuse because 
women who are, you know, and men, it was, it was all elders, anybody over the age of 65. So, you know, when you have sexual abuse or you have physical abuse, even financial abuse, it's very easy to see. You can see the bruises, even in sexual abuse, if there's no trace, there's, there's still the memory of the event. It's very clear, but neglect is something that never really sometimes doesn't come to the surface and someone can be suffering from neglect for sometimes decades before they get the help they need or before someone recognizes that this is what's going on. And it kind of ties into to mental health to what we were talking about. And so I, I did some publish some publications around that. I could talk to you about elder. elder I was just going to all yeah, day. Yes. I had a career in elder care. So yeah. that's, that, that is a place we could go for another hour, but, what, but I won't go there. Okay. I, I have your website open on another monitor here. Where do we find out about your, your book on breast health? So it's published probably in a library by now, but I could probably link, I could probably find the link to you and send it. Sure. After. If you don't mind, I'll put it in, in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So it was femgevityhealth.com. Yes. And, and you're on social. Yes. Yeah. LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. <laughs> all stuff. Okay. The usual. Yeah. Okay. Website link is in the show notes and all of your links will be part of your bio on the website. Listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Leave stars and reviews where you can because they help us grow. Share this episode with your women friends. Many of us are post-menopause, but longevity would be fun. And the more we can uh, do for ourselves in that department, the better. I'll share with my friends because I want to grow ancient with them. (laughs) Kristen Mallon, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of the week.